Recovery Elevator, episode 55. And then I'm like, oh, okay. The addiction has woken up. It's talking to me and it's telling me that it wants a beer. And it's time to put the monster, so to speak, back to bed. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for four days shy of 1.5 years. On episode 000, I mentioned that 5% of 5% make it to two years. 5% of people who decide they want to quit drinking, they make it to 90 days. And then after that, only 5% from the people at 90 days make it to two years. I am not there yet. I've still got a long way to go, but something's working. I can't pinpoint exactly what it is, but something's working, and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. On today's podcast, I've got Brandy. She's a mother of two, and she's 27 years old. At the time of this recording, I am in between Recovery Elevator meetups. I was in Seattle this past weekend, and I fly out in two days to San Francisco, and I cannot wait. I'm going to comment more on the Seattle meetup after the interview with Brandy. But first, I want to talk to you guys about what I have going on tomorrow at 2 o'clock, or 24 hours and 6 minutes, but who's counting? That would be me because I'm terrified. I'm talking to a student body of over 900 kids. Lesson learned here, be careful what you ask for. I've already spoken to a handful of schools in Colorado where I grew up. They were powerful experiences. They all helped me stay sober, and I hope the kids got some meaningful value out of it as well. About two months ago, somebody asked me if I had plans to speak in the Bozeman area. The short answer was no. Why? I actually had to think about it. I came up with several answers, all of them pretty weak. Things like, well, you know, I don't really know anybody up here. I want to keep my recovery and my community separate. But those excuses are weak. Those excuses are derived from the stigma. The real answer is I'm afraid. I'm terrified. Not so much afraid of standing in front of large groups of people and talking. That was actually my favorite class in college, public speaking. I loved it. More so taking this next step in my journey. I was terrified to make this podcast. I was terrified when the local paper, the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, did an article on the podcast. I was terrified when I did my one-year post on Facebook. Looking back, I realize now that fear was completely unwarranted and nothing but good things came from those choices. I have a feeling, and I could be wrong, that the same thing will happen after I talk to the school. Nothing but good things are going to happen. I'm going to create more accountability hopefully be able to reach a couple students in the student body and talk about alcohol and recovery for 35 minutes, a topic that I am extremely passionate about. I guess I'm afraid of another wave of people hearing that I'm an alcoholic, but if I am going to walk the walk that I talk on this podcast, I don't have a choice. I have to do this. In fact, my buddy told me he just got a job as a school counselor at the school. Before Gary, my addiction could stop me, I was like, hey, Let me send you a link to the podcast. I'd love to chat over there. He sent a link to some other faculty. I went over and I chatted with them and boom, tomorrow, I'm talking to almost a thousand kids. A thousand more people, including teachers and staff, will know that I'm an alcoholic. I don't live in a big city like Chicago or a large metropolitan area where the chances that I run into these people are slim. There's a very good chance. In fact, I'm going to go with like a 99.9% chance. These kids will see me out in public. Hopefully at a Third Eye Blind concert, maybe in a movie theater line, checking out at the grocery store, 
but I also realize this is an opportunity to lead by example. If I'm checking out in a grocery store and I got a six pack of LaCroix soda water, it might reinforce the idea to somebody that life can be happily lived without alcohol. And you never know. I could be in a grocery store checkout line reading the tabloids and somebody who was in that audience could tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, I got a quick question. I think I drink too much. I'm actually describing a situation that happened very similar to this one. It wasn't a high school student, but you get the point. If I do become ill in the next 24 hours, which I'm kind of hoping happens, then I won't have this tremendous opportunity to shred the shame, to shed light on the stigma surrounding alcoholism. And let's talk about what I'm going to talk about. I'm basically taking my own approach here. I did go on YouTube and find some other alcohol awareness talks that have previously been done at high schools. They're all really good. I'm just going to try something a little different. Wrap the message up in my own personal way, I guess. I'm going to start off by saying, hey guys, you probably imagine if I'm up here talking to this large group of people, I'm probably really good at something. You might be thinking, this guy, he's probably a professional athlete, but he's not big enough. Maybe he's an artist. Maybe he's in a band. Maybe he's a movie director. I'm going to look at them and I'm going to say, yeah, I was really good at something. In fact, I'm still good at this something. I just choose not to do it today and hopefully not tomorrow either. That is drinking. I was exceptionally good at drinking. Exceptionally good at drinking beer. And then that went to whiskey, tequila, vodka, and then wine. And then after that, evolved into really anything that I could get my hands on. I was so good at drinking that when I started, I could sometimes go for five days without stopping. And then I'm basically going to shed light on what all their brains are thinking right there at that moment. They're going to try to connect the dots, and I'm going to let them do it. I'm going to say, yeah. If a guy builds a bridge, he's a bridge builder. If someone designs a house, they're an architect. So if this guy on stage is really good at drinking alcohol, sometimes he starts drinking and can't stop ever, maybe for four or five days. He has a mental obsession about alcohol. He's always trying to find ways that he can drink normally. And he has inner dialogue with a dude named Gary. Besides having great musical tastes and third eye blind, this guy, he's got to be an alcoholic. Yeah. I'm an alcoholic. Cat's out of the bag. Surprise. And then will come the time in the talk where I'm going to rattle off some stats that are just going to blow their minds. And these stats actually are kind of alarming. Do you guys know that more teenagers are killed each year by alcohol than every other drug combined? Teens who begin drinking before age of 15 are five times more likely to develop alcohol dependence than those who begin drinking at age 21. And then I'm going to try to bridge the gap, which isn't hard to do. That alcohol is a communal family disease. In that crowd, believe it or not, of 900 kids, there's probably a small handful of alcoholics. Kids getting sober at age 17, that's not unheard of. But there is not one kid in that crowd. Again, I could be wrong, and I wish I was wrong, but I don't think I am. There's not one kid in that crowd that hasn't been infected by alcoholism. Whether it's a parent, whether it's a friend, whether it's an uncle, an aunt, a neighbor, whoever. This is a family disease and everybody's been affected by it. It's like the giant elephant in a room. I'm then going to go on to talk about how alcoholism is a disease. And in 1956, the American Medical Association classified alcoholism addiction as a disease. That debate is going to be over right then and there. We're not even going to talk about that. And then I'm going to talk about a disease they've all heard of, cancer. I'm going to try to draw some parallels between cancer and alcoholism. 
For example, when somebody looks at a spot on their arm that could potentially be skin cancer, they're not going to look at that spot and be like, uh, I got it. I, you know what? I am going to rub a cream on this. Uh, I, I'm good. I'm just going to roll in some dirt. I've heard that helps. And I'm going to come up with a plan that like I'll only be in the sun like after 5 because 3 p.m. is like the hottest time of the day. Like, I, I got this under control. No, there's no stigma surrounding cancer. If somebody even has an inkling of a suspect that they have cancer, they're going to reach out and get help. With alcohol, completely opposite. We wait till we get to the most acute point of our disease, aka our bottom, when our elevator has stopped. And that's the point when help arrives. Well, actually, sometimes it's not help. It could be an ambulance. It could be a gurney. It could be a loved one saying, look, this has gone too far. And then I'm going to talk about how you get alcoholism. Yeah. Is it contagious? You never know. You could have asked me that question in high school and I would have been like, maybe it is, maybe it's not. I didn't really know. In fact, I don't ever recall somebody coming to my high school and talking to us about alcohol. I remember people coming and talking to us how to reach our lofty goals and dreams and they were really great speakers. I'm not downplaying that at all, but I really wish somebody had come to my school and talked to us about alcohol. Maybe a lot of that misery could have been avoided. And looking hindsight through a rear view mirror, saying to myself, if some guy or girl had come to my school and talked about alcohol, maybe I would have been to Belgium. Yeah, I was too drunk and I missed my flight to Belgium when I was living in Spain. But who knows? You never know. And that's not really healthy behavior to think about that. So I talk about how one might become an alcoholic. First place I go to is genetics. Studies show that 10 to 12% of the population, when confronted with enough alcohol, will eventually become an alcoholic due to their genetic predisposition to alcohol. And then I'm really going to dumb it down, something that even I would have understood. Say, hey, look, if your dad's tall, your mom's tall, there's a good chance you're going to be tall. If your dad's tall, your mom's short, you might be 5'9", like myself. Now, if both parents are tall, you might be short. Both parents are short, you might be tall. You never really know, but you do have a better chance of becoming an alcoholic if one parent is an alcoholic or both parents are alcoholics. You have a greater chance of becoming an alcoholic. I have learned that this is not a hard sell in these talks. Like I said, I spoke to a handful of schools in Colorado, and by simply splicing in a couple personal stories from when I was in high school, it becomes very relatable. And the main hurdle I talk about is the stigma. How would I blame it on the Super Bowl? Well, the advertisements on the Super Bowl affect all the ads in the media. Be print, our favorite sitcom, movies. That's not helping anything. We see these advertisements in the Super Bowl of guys just enjoying Bud Light Lime. I mean, nobody enjoys the taste of Bud Light Lime. How can those guys be having a good time drinking Bud Light Lime? Because it's the stigma that nearly brought me to my end in the summer of 2014. I was ashamed when I should not have been ashamed. And me making excuses of why I did not want to talk in my own community to the public about this, guilty as freaking charged, that might be a little bit of shame. But I got to shred this shame, and I'll let you guys know how it goes tomorrow. It's actually going to be filmed, and I'm going to put this up on YouTube. You can go to YouTube and just search Recovery Elevator, and hopefully I get it up in the next week or two. And to finish the talk, I talk about resources. I say, hey guys, you have a staff of counselors right here that are more than willing to bend over backward to help you guys. Teachers, that's their job. They're here to help, to instruct, to teach, and guide you through these moments in life. I talk about Alateen and Al-Anon. I tell them about Dr. Google, and I also mention their Recovery Elevator podcast. Although I hope none of those students binge listen to Recovery Elevator podcast because they feel like they need to.
One thing to keep in mind while delivering this speech is to do it like I drank alcohol. Go big or go home. If I'm going to talk to them and not lay it all out on the line, they're going to see right through it. I've got to be honest. I've got to be genuine. And I need to put my fear aside, which isn't always the easiest thing to do, though. Another thing I talk about is relapse. The students are probably thinking, oh, this guy's cured. He's been sober for a year and a half. He's good to go. I talk about cancer patients when they are in remission, a.k.a. recovery, that sometimes the cancer will come back. And that's okay. We would never get down on somebody, even criticize somebody if their cancer came back. Not to say that people did that to me when I relapsed, but I did it to myself big time. I say, hey, look, I might relapse. That's not the plan. I'm fairly certain that today I'm going to stay sober. And that's the plan tomorrow moving forward. But if I do relapse, I can tell you one thing. I'm going to get back up on my feet and start over with day one. Because if there's one thing that I've learned while doing this podcast, if we get knocked down 50 times, we're getting up 51 times. So go to recoveryelevator.com, show notes, episode 55, and you can find a link to the YouTube video to this chat. Now let's hear from our interviewee, Brandy. Brandy, how are you? I'm doing good. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's jump right into it, Brandy. How long have you been sober? I have been sober since December 11th, so 69 days. Nice job. That's big time. Before we get further along in this interview, I'm curious myself. Tell me more about yourself, maybe your background, where you're from, where you live, do you have kids, what you do for a living, hobbies, things like that. Well, I am a 27-year-old former stay-at-home mom. I have finished schooling for the past year or so, and I am a realtor that lives in the Bay Area. I've lived here for about three years. I moved from Seattle, Washington. I have two kids, and they are two and seven years old. And other than that, I'm just working on getting my business going and staying sober. Nice. So you're kind of an entrepreneur as well, getting your own business going, being a realtor. Am I correct on that? That's correct. Nice. That is so cool. Can't wait to get into this. So let's talk about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Tell me about your elevator. When did you decide the, that it was done? Was there was there a significant moment on December 11th? Or when did your elevator reach its bottom you decided to get off? Well, I started trying to stop drinking back in November of 2015. That was probably the first time when the word alcoholic started crossing my mind. So I started trying to, and I was, I was sober for a couple of weeks. Then I drank on Thanksgiving, and I started drinking more and more and more. And it was probably like a binge that ended on December 11th. It kind of ended because December 9th, 10th, I was in the hospital both days. Once because I was drunk, once because my husband called the cops on me. And it was either me go to the hospital or I get a DUI. Somehow the kids had ended up in the car with me. I went to the hospital. And that was the moment when I was like, yeah, I'm done. That sounds like a pretty impactful moment and a no-brainer decision on that. Go to the hospital or get a DUI. A lot of people don't have that option, so that's nice. Back it up to November when you said you started to try to quit drinking. Was that a moment where you're like, uh, this is harder than I thought? Yeah, it definitely was harder than I thought. I thought it would be easy because I stopped drinking when I was pregnant with both of my kids and I didn't drink for for almost two years after having my daughter. So I'm like, okay, this shouldn't be hard because, you know, it's not a problem. And when I started training to stop drinking, that's when I'm like, yeah, that's when the cravings and the weird thoughts in the head began. And I'm like, oh, huh. Yeah, so after your daughter was born, you had two years of sobriety. 
at that time, did you, you said alcoholic just crossed your mind this last November, 2015, but during those two years of sobriety, did you not drink because you thought you had a drinking problem or was it just something like, look, I'm sober for nine months. I'm feeling great. If it's not broken, don't fix it. No, it was more like when I got pregnant, I knew I was going to um, breastfeed. So I'm like, okay, I have this goal. And once I complete this goal, then I can start mixing in alcohol. And I actually started drinking back in, uh, I think it was February. I had my first like drunken moment. And then I kind of stopped again because I'm like, it scared me. And I didn't want to be that mom that's like nursing and trying to like stay sober. So I stopped. But it was only because I had that goal of, okay, I need to be sober so I meet, meet my goal of breastfeeding her until she's like one and a half and then I can drink. There is an underlying theme I've heard from interviewing people on this podcast, Brandy, is that when the goal of getting sober for somebody else, for example, your kids, the goal of nine months and while you're breastfeeding, you probably not a good idea to drink either, that usually works and you can get sober for an occasional period of time. But what I found is when the goal is not pertaining to yourself, like I want to get sober for myself, it rarely sticks. Did you experience that? Absolutely. Yeah. I got sober for her. And then when that was done, I was like, okay, well, I don't have anything else to stay sober for. So let me start drinking. Yeah. It's like, okay, you can now have juice boxes and mommy can now have wine. Precisely. Yeah. I hear you. And tell me about Thanksgiving. That day is always a bitch for a lot of people in recovery. What happened on Thanksgiving? It was just the stress. I typically cook Thanksgiving dinner. And I usually enjoy it. But having the in-laws over and them seeing our apartment for the first time, it was just like my ongoing stress, trying to cook a turkey by yourself and everything else by yourself. I was just like, I was looking for an excuse. And so I took the excuse and I ran with it. I have a tremendous amount of respect for mothers out there and fathers who are trying to get sober and staying sober because I have a lovely poodle and I can't imagine what it's like having two kids, the time demands and, and the stresses on your life. So comment on that. How was it getting sober and staying sober for 69 days when you've got two other people? That's got to be stressful, right? It is, but it also keeps me focused. And I guess to me, it's more like, I'm looking back on my past, especially with my son, and I'm realizing I can't remember a lot of things about his early childhood when he was like two or three. And that really terrifies me because I don't want to be the mom that says, um, yeah, I can't remember anything that happened. So I guess I'm using today as, as a chance to make up for lost time. I'm trying to pay more attention, trying to be more present for them. Sure. And it's hard, but <laughs> you have to do what you have to do. It's hard, but you got to do what you got to do. I love it. That could be your quote moving forward in sobriety. And back it up, say in 2015, before November happened, I'm curious to know about your drinking habits. What were the, what was it like? How often did you drink and how much? And, and did you ever try to like cut back, pull your foot off that gas pedal? And did that ever work? My drinking habits, it started with like beer in the evening. And then it started to escalate. So I, when I first began drinking in 2015, I'd start with like, I started about two beers and they were 12 ounces and then it gradually like worked its way up to the point where I was drinking basically anytime I was awake, I would drink a beer. I'd have a beer in my hand and if I didn't, I'd be going to the store to get that beer. I tried to limit it. I'd make myself a promise. Well, I'm not going to drink before six o'clock, but then I'd start drinking. And at the end, my worst, I moved up. So instead of just drinking beer, I'm like, okay, since I'm drinking so many beers, 
I was drinking probably 20 beers a day at that time. I'll just drink like a small bottle of vodka and it'll be okay. And yeah, didn't help. Your, your addiction probably eloquently convinced you economically it would be a better decision. Hey, 20 beers at a dollar a piece or a you know $8 bottle of vodka. Um, that was probably a pretty convincing voice, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and before when you were talking, I wrote down two words that have that are underlying themes in this podcast. You said escalate and gradually. And one very dangerous aspect that alcohol has is it kills by the inches, not by the mile at a time, but it gradually gets worse, sometimes so slow that we don't even realize it's happening. But without fail, it escalates. Talk to me about that. Well, see, I never thought I was an alcoholic because I don't know. I couldn't see it escalating from my point of view. I could see it in other people. Um, I have three brothers. Two of them are very strong alcoholics and addicts. And I could look at them and I'm like, okay, yeah, they're going crazy. They're drinking. But myself, I'm like, I couldn't see it. I didn't realize it. I mean, yeah, I could look in the garbage and I'd see all those cans and stuff. But it'd be like this foggy memory. And I never actually saw it happening. And then one day my husband found my stash of beers. Well, he's, he had done it a couple of times, um, and he dumped them all in the sink. It was one of my biggest memories. And just looking at that, I was like, really? I didn't realize I had drank all them. And that's when it started clicking, so to speak, making more sense. And it, the realization started coming over me, so to speak. Brandy, I think in 2011, my parents cleaned out the basement before they had their basement finished. And... I think it was like six or seven bottles that they found that I had stashed for, for like years past. And I had been very diligent upon removing the alcohol bottles. So I know how that feels. And my mom was saying it kind of in a funny, funny way. Like, oh, you guys were crazy partying in high school and college. And I really wanted to be like, mom, I, I drank all those by myself while doing puzzles. And you guys were upstairs. So it's, it's a tough moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, talk to me about your relationship with your kids, maybe with your husband. How has that improved in sobriety? Well, it's funny. Last night I was talking to my husband and told him I was going to be doing this. And he's like, well, in the past couple months, you've given me no reason to hate you. And wow. it, yeah, um, when I drink, I'm completely different. I'm like a crazy psychotic person. I act mean and I just don't care. I will pretend I'm like asleep even if I'm not asleep even if that means sleeping in a puddle of like where I had just thrown up. That's the length that I have gone in when drinking. So relationships with my husband and my kids, now I'm actually there for them. I'm not pretending I'm not there for them. I'm listening to them and being here in the present. And I'm actually have more energy and time for them. That is incredible. Being there in the moment, being present for them, that's got to feel good. Congratulations on that. And tell me, what was it like after actually December 11th? Walk me through like the following days after you got sober. You walk out of the hospital, you're like, uh, now what? How'd that feel? It was scary. December 11th, a couple of days before my husband had told me he was leaving me. He was just tired of it. He was, he was done. So I was kind of like walking out. And I'm like, and in my head, I was having this conversation. It's like, I have two choices. I can go. I can drink. Or I can try this sober thing. And even if he's not there for me, so what? Do I really want to be that drunken person living on the street? Or do I want to be happy and completing my goals? Because I used to have those. 
And so at that moment, I knew that I needed to make that choice. And I didn't want to do it for him because he wasn't going to be there. So I didn't care. And while I loved my kids, it's like I knew remembering, like, after having my daughter, it's like, I can't just keep making this goal. I need to make it for me. So the first few days, it's like I was in zombie mode, basically. I dragged myself to AA. I went and sat at AA. I think the first day sober, I went to four or five AA meetings in a row, and they kept on asking, are you going to leave? I'm like, I can't leave. If I leave, I'm scared what I'm going to do. So, yeah, the first few days, I was a zombie, just sitting at AA, listening, and staying sober. Brandy, I love the way you phrased your two choices. And in fact, if usually it is that simple. However, it is completely muddled by the fog of the of the disease. And there's a comedian, I forget his name right now, but he does a piece on really easy choices when it's that clear. He's like, would you like a piece of red velvet cake or would you like to jump in hot lava? It's like, well, obviously, I'll take the cake. And the way you said it, it, it's pretty clear. It's like, okay, I could either be homeless and not happy or live with my family and be happy. It's, it's really that clear, but gosh, it's so confusing to make that decision because our disease, it gets so muddled. And looking back, though, it was probably a pretty clear decision and you made the right one, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, when you look back, it's, it's simple, but in the meantime, it's so hard to make that decision. And how'd you do it? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. December 11th, December 12th. I know you went into zombie mode, and I love that. I actually wrote it down and put quotes next to it. I love zombie mode. In fact, my first four or five days of sobriety, actually, I think first month, it was like three meetings a day. I was in zombie mode myself, so I can, I can feel you on that one. But tell me about your recovery portfolio. Like When you're not in zombie mode and not sitting in the chairs at an AA meeting, how, how do you do it? I spend a lot of time on the internet. It's, of course, everybody usually has a phone. So I, when I feel like even that inkling of a voice, I pull out my phone, I pull up Recovery Elevator, I listen to podcasts, I read anything to keep refreshing my memory why I want to be sober. And it's not even about just like my stories. I need to hear other stories because some would say I'm more of like a high bottom because I didn't actually lose a lot of things except for my sanity and um, yeah, my sanity is a pretty important thing. So I need to hear other things and read other people's stories so that I remember and I keep striving to stay sober. So internet meetings, I have a sponsor, I text her. I'm not a big phone person, so I tend to text or email or write. So I just make sure I'm talking to people because if I don't talk to people, the voices are going to talk to me in my head and it's never good to listen to voices in your head. So, yeah. <laughs> you temporarily lost your sanity and I've learned this the hard way you and I could both lose our sanity tomorrow but the plan today is I'm having a great conversation with you Brandy I'm loving every second of it and actually at noon my time I'm going to have coffee with my sponsor so I'm fairly certain that today I'm going to keep my sanity but I do know I'm not thinking about tomorrow because the sanity could be gone but it's tomorrow I want to be present in the moment right now and you said the recovery elevator group, Brandy, that's where I met you. And you get it, at least from the outside looking in. You've got a lot of videos where they're simply just checking in. And you understand the accountability component of the recovery elevator accountability group. Like you read the title of the group. It's accountability group. And sometimes I, sometimes I see your videos. You're like driving up to a mountain, you know, like your snowboard hanging out the window or whatnot. You've got kids in the back. And with you, like 
you're not making the video for views. I think if you check your phone the next day and zero people watch the video, like you wouldn't really care. It's because you're checking in and you're holding yourself accountable. Am I right on that? Absolutely. I find if I'm accountable to people on the internet, to people in general, to my kids, if I make this video, then it's going to keep me in the moment today. And like you said, tomorrow is a different day, but today I know that I'm here, I'm sane, and I'm making this video so that I know that I'm keeping my word. Yeah, when I say zero people watch your video, that's actually never been the case. There's always comments that follow. And you always start with just like, hey, Recovery Elevator, just checking in. And that resonates with me. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I still need to check in. I love it. I love it. And tell me about snowboarding in sobriety because I've seen some like on the mountain footage, beautiful days up on the mountain. And how's snowboarding going in sobriety? Well, honestly, I think snowboarding, I had never drank while snowboarding. Um, I had always waited to drink till afterwards. But even that, not having that weight of, oh, okay, I finished snowboarding, I'm going to go drink beer. Yeah, I don't have that now. And it's such a nice feeling because you get to finish snowboarding and you go and you watch people coming down the mountain and it's just gorgeous feeling, taking in the fresh air, not having your breath or your smell, um, like intoxicated by the fumes of beer or liquor. And it's just, you're actually smelling the mountain instead of smelling like, um, basically like gasoline. (laughs) Yeah, this might seem like a strange question, but what does it smell like? <laughs> like uh, crisp, clean air. I don't know, like clean. I don't know a better word. <laughs> I, I think clean. Clean and fresh. I think clean is a great descriptor for that. And you're enjoying the ride up to the mountain. You're enjoying the ride down to the mountain. And there were times in drinking that I would get dragged up to the mountain. I'd be skiing and. Like, oh, the ride up there sucked. And, you know, after a couple runs, it was enjoyable. But I would tell myself, like, all right, I paid a ridiculous amount of money for this ski ticket. I got to at least do, like, four to five more runs. And then we're going to go to Opry Ski Bars. And then it's on after that. It's is, it got to be nice to knowing, like, okay, it's the last run of the day. There's not this, like, obsession after that to drink, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's liberating. Talk to me about that. Well, I mean – not having that like weird um, responsibility in your head going, oh, okay, I have to do this today. And then after that, I get to go home and I get to drink. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, why you put yourself through like this time frame. Okay, I'm going to do this thing and then I'm going to go home and I'm going to drink this five, ten, whatever. And then I'm going to pass out. I mean, not having to do that, not putting yourself through that craziness. It's amazing. I mean, no, I get to go and do something, and when I'm done, I'm like, okay, I can go relax, I can read, I can watch TV, I can drink some apple juice, or I can drink some water, and I'm still going to be aware of my surroundings. I'm not going to be in like some weird haze trying to figure out what's going on. Talk to me more about apple juice and other beverages in sobriety, because when I had a Sprite without vodka or a Sprite without other mixed drinks, I'm like, oh my God, Sprite? This is delicious. <laughs> well, I was mainly a beer drinker. So for me, my first and my favorite drink altogether in sobriety is sparkling water. And something about it just like it tastes so good and so clean. And it's like I would drink beer and I would be like trying to force myself to drink it. And, you know, realizing that now it's like water tastes really good. And I never realized that before. And Sprite or apple juice, even Coke, although Coke is kind of sweet for me, 
they really taste good without all of those muddling weird things changing the taste of it. Isn't it amazing? You're like water. Oh, this this tastes delicious. I was at a restaurant a couple of weeks ago and they ordered a Shirley Temple and it, it was like mind blowing of how delicious it was. And I, and there was like a cherry at the bottom. It, it just, it, the fun just never ended. It was great. I loved it. Have you ever had a Shirley Temple in sobriety? Highly recommend it. <laughs> I will check that out. Yes. Yes. And there's, there's a brand of soda water. I can't remember right now. It's in a can. It's like, there's like, it's lightly flavored. There's like grapefruit, lime. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've seen it posted in the group. What is that called? Do you have any idea? Uh, maybe LaCroix or something. LaCroix. That's it. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a French name. So I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Uh, but yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is. Brandy, you mentioned the word internal voice earlier in the interview. Have you become bilingual, shall I say, in, in recovery where you hear the voice, but you got to like translate it, be like, all right, that's my addiction talking. Does it? I mean, the voice never goes away. Let me tell you, after being sober for almost a year and a half, the voice is still there. Can you recognize when your voice is talking? I'm beginning to. Sometimes I just don't. Um, I mean, I'm still pretty early in sobriety, but yeah, um, I'm finding myself more mindful or like in the for example, during the day, I'll start thinking, and then all of a sudden, I'll have, like, this voice go, beer. And it's like, I didn't think about beer. What is beer? And then I start thinking, like, actually mindfully thinking, and then I'm like, oh, okay. The addiction has woken up. It's talking to me, and it's telling me that it wants beer, and it's time to put the monsters, so to speak, back to bed. <laughs> I love it. Put the monsters back to bed. Yeah, the addiction, it's there. And I respect him. And, you know, my addiction's name is Gary. I personified him and the name kind of stuck. But Gary is pretty damn educated. I'll start thinking about a random topic and Gary will chime in and, and take the conversation in a path that I don't want to go. And usually his end goal is to be like, well, this problem will solve itself with a drink, but isn't rewarding. And sometimes it takes a couple minutes to realize like, oh, damn it, Gary, you're, you're talking again. When, when, like you said, and then you realize what is that like when you get to the point? You're like, oh, okay, that's just my addiction. How does that feel? It feels good knowing because I know I didn't give into it and it's like a victory. I want to, or I want to reward myself because I didn't give in and reward myself. I can go have that sparkling water because, hey, it's good for me. It tastes good. And the monster is just trying to make itself known and I'm going to show it. I'm going to defeat it to this week. So it feels really good. I love it, Brandy. We have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be great. Are you ready, Brandy? Um, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Waking up kind of from a fog and hearing somebody screaming at my husband, only to realize that it's me screaming at my husband. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, that's That's tough. That's tough. Next one. And number two, we've all heard of that aha moment when an inventor invents something brilliant. When was your oh shit moment when you finally realized that you might not have a control on this drinking thing? When I woke up from passing out from drinking, drinking a beer, barfing up the beer and then drinking a different beer. That was my oh shit. I really can't control this. Next up, Brandy, what's your plan moving forward in sobriety? To continue with AA, Recovery Elevator, make myself more accountable and keep checking in with all of my groups. Love it. And next question, Brandy, 
In regards to recovery and sobriety, what are your favorite resources? That would be Facebook, the Recovery Elevator app, and AA, um, and my sponsor, of course. I love it. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Keep checking in or keep coming back. Make yourself accountable. <laughs> I get those three things. You definitely get the accountability part. I can see that firsthand. Last question, Brandy. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or are thinking about quitting drinking? If you start to quit and you stumble, don't give up and don't give in because we've all had our stumbles. It doesn't mean that you can't stop. It just means you need a little bit more help. And there are people out there that's going to help you. So don't give in. I love it. And before we go, give listeners your own personalized, you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you have a seizure and when you get out of the hospital, you go drink anyways. Wow. I love it. Brandy, thanks for helping me maintain my sanity today. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. You might be an alcoholic if, when on vacation, every time you go out to eat with your boyfriend who doesn't want you to drink, you make sure he sits in a place with his back to the bar so you can sneak a drink on your way to the bathroom. Thanks for that, Fanina. This next one's for Maureen. You might be an alcoholic if you wake up in the hospital and have to ask the nurse to help you look up impound lots after your car was totaled four days earlier and you have no recollection of where the accident happened. This next one's from Mike. You might be an alcoholic if you look up on your Wells Fargo credit card bill statement and you find charges you don't recognize from a random hotel lobby bar. You file all the paperwork and manage to get the charges lifted only to talk to your friend three weeks later and he's like, man, you were hammered at that random hotel lobby bar. This next one's from Sarja. You might be an alcoholic if you get so desperate for mixers that you use mint tea or similar to mix your vodka. You decide it tastes worse somehow and you just start doing shots alone on a Tuesday. This next one is from Arista. You might be an alcoholic if your podcast app says you've heard those 15 podcasts already, but you don't remember a single one. Recovery Elevator, as I mentioned, I am in between meetups. So I just came back from Seattle and in two days I go to San Francisco. I've got to give a personal shout out to Angela, Jill, Robert, Sarah, Eric, and Jody for helping me bring supplies to put this event on. There were 21 of us total and it was a lot of fun. I want to reiterate, guys, this is not about me. I simply put the event on and then I became a participant. I got to meet people in person that I've interviewed on past episodes. I got to meet people that I've had many conversations with in the private accountability groups. I expanded my recovery network portfolio. And next time I'm visiting my brother who lives in Seattle, I'm going to hang out with some other alcoholics and I'm looking forward to it. Recovery elevator. You took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this. Oh yeah. And to be clear, those are metaphorical stairs that we need to take back up. At the meetup in Seattle, we definitely took the elevator to the 41st floor. Have a great day, Ari.